You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is actually not that cool. It's a little bit troubling. And it's that today we're going to talk about kids. And right now, only about 2% of American children eat a healthy diet. Researchers say that childhood obesity could reduce life expectancy by five years or more over the next decades. It's already happening, by the way, right now. We just had a reduction in that that you'll hear about in the show. And I want my kids to have the ability to live to at least 150, given that I'm going to live to 180 plus, at least that's my plan. I also want your kids to have that same opportunity, because I believe it's entirely possible, given our biology, given, given our technology, that we can extend our human lifespan very meaningfully, not so you're old and decrepit, but so that you're old and full of energy. And then uh, eventually you, you die, but you don't spend 30 years in a retirement home unless that's what you want to do. It, it's that level of freedom, that level of control over our biology. And that's what has my attention because right now 45% of children diagnosed with diabetes have type 2 diabetes just because they're obese. When I was an obese kid, I was never diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. In my early 20s, I had fasting blood sugar of 117 and I was definitely pre-diabetic, pretty much on the cusp of type 2 diabetes. And I know that that was not necessary, and it wasn't because my parents didn't care. They were actually actively taking steps to improve my health. They were just the wrong steps. And experts believe that if the current adolescent obesity rates persist, persist there'll be more than 100,000 additional cases of heart disease connected to obesity in about 20 years. This is just not okay. So you're going to hear 
from a guy on the show today who is doing something about it, a guy with some of the most impressive credentials you'll ever come across, a New York Times number one best-selling author who's been on the show before. So this is not meant to scare you as a cool factor of the day. This is meant to inspire you that there's something not so cool happening, but there's stuff you can do about it. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. We are filming live from the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine in Las Vegas, which is the preeminent event for anti-aging physicians really in the world. This is a very well-respected organization. And I have one of the keynote speakers here uh, as a guest, which is a, a good honor. We get to meet in person. If you're a longtime listener, you already maybe heard the podcast with Dr. David Ludwig. Dr. Ludwig is a, a giant in our field. And in that, and I'm going to have to read this because there's too many affiliations uh, for all of you. So if you're watching on our YouTube channel, um, you see I'm looking down here. He's an endocrinologist and researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital. He's a founder of the Optimal Weight for Life program, a professor of pediatrics at Harvard, and a professor of nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. So you don't see a lot of endocrinologists, physicians, nutrition professors out there. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing just academically and the, the things you've tied together. Dr. Ludwig, so welcome to the show. Thank you. It's you know great pleasure to be back with you, and congratulations on your great work. Oh, thanks. Uh, it, it's funny because uh, I'm also keynoting at this conference, which is a, an honor for me because I'm the only non-physician to do it and to share a stage with uh, with you and with Dr. Perlmutter. David Perlmutter, so we <laughs> talked about the 3Ds, the three Davids. Exactly. It, it's You've got nutrition of, in 3D. It, it, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, and the reason I wanted to talk with you today and to share your knowledge with our guests is that last time you were on the show, you talked about your new book, Always Hungry, which is, if you guys haven't checked out this book, if you liked The Bulletproof Diet, if you're interested in what fat can do for you, here's a guy with about 10,000 times more academic credentials than I have uh, who has some good stuff to say about fat. You're one of the, the people leading the national conversation uh, along with like Nina Tur. I always say her name wrong. Ty Schultz. Ty Schultz. And Nina and I are friends as well, even though I say her name wrong, uh, who's, who's also written some books about fat. But, but there's this national conversation where you have the old school, low fats, uh, mostly paid for by big grain <laughs> uh, sort, of, sort of research out there. And you're refuting some of that using uh, very strong academics, randomized controlled trials, and the things that everyone wants but no one has paid for, uh, except for maybe you know, big drug companies and things like that. But there's something else you've done. It's something that I actually really value, and I wanted to talk about that as well. Your very first book was actually about combating childhood obesity. So I want today to touch on what are we going to do in order to get randomized controlled trials, like really good research to support the things that are in your book, things that are in Dr. Perlmutter's book, and the things about what fat actually does for our brains and our metabolism. So that's part of it. The other thing is what can people listening do for their kids to combat childhood obesity. As you know, I was an obese child, and I still have stretch marks all over the place. Wow. 
Quick plug, by the way, right. the new Stretch Marks book is on Amazon. It's like <laughs> a buck or something. It's really cheap. Everything I know about Stretch Marks in one place. So you don't have to stretch financially. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but this is the sort of thing, if someone had told me when I was a kid, yeah. I was desperate. Right. Like, I, you know, the three rippled stomach when you're you know, 14, and you don't, your self-esteem is affected by that, and, and you feel... Sure. You, you just you feel crappy, and my parents are giving me bran muffins and squeeze margarine because that's what the doctors said, you know. What should people listening do if they're dealing with fat kids or well, just to help fat Yeah, kids? well, we're, part of the tragedy is that not only is the main prescription that we're telling people to follow, the low-fat diet, doesn't work. Not only does it not work for most people, and we can talk about why, yeah. but it blames people for the failure. You know, if losing weight is just about calorie balance, just eat less, move more, then anybody should be able to do it. And if you can't do it, there must be something the matter with you. Like, like a moral failing, right? Well, it's, you know, and why is it that society treats people with a weight problem with more stigma than with almost any other medical issue? It's because there's this implicit sense that weight is simply a matter of, of wills, willpower, discipline, and sticking to a diet, and that if you can't do it, there must be something the matter with you. Yeah, you're weak. Yeah. Poor discipline, poor willpower, or a character issue. You know, I mean, think of uh, gluttony and sloth among the seven deadly sins. And my message, and so many others, including yours, is that uh, body weight is more about biology than willpower. Oh yeah. You know, talk about kids in school to this day. Children can get fat-free sugary, pink, or chocolate milk. As long, so it doesn't matter that if they dump in loads of sugar as long as it's fat-free. But children are prohibited by national policy through the USDA from getting plain whole milk. Now, this it's, is the, it's offensive. This is what I call the persisting harms of the low-fat diet era. Even though the USDA came forth with its new recommendations, 2015, quietly lifting the limit on dietary fat, almost nobody knows about it because yeah. the low-fat diet was launched with massive fanfare. Government, nutrition societies, doctors, dietitians have been telling us for so long that if you don't want fat on your body, don't put fat into your body. And yet that whole low-fat diet era has sort of been ended with no publicity. So yeah. the public consciousness is still colored by that fear of fat, and food policy, national nutrition policy, as we were just discussing in the schools, and there are dozens of other examples, is still infused by the low-fat message. Why is, why is that wrong? I mean, your audience has heard you talk about this, but it's simply because when you cut back on fat, if you restrict calories, and low-fat low diets are the way to do that most quickly, yes, you lose weight, but your body fights back. The brain perceives calorie deprivation, and what does it do? I mean, what every dieter recognizes. Your hunger goes up, your metabolism slows down, you go into starvation mode, stress hormones are secreted, mm -hmm. that then further erode your lean tissue, and that's a recipe for failure. But we've got to reverse that, and actually one of the best ways is instead to focus on the processed carbohydrates, which are raising insulin and driving fat cells into a feeding frenzy. Once fat cells calm down, the calories you eat stay around in the bloodstream longer, so they're there to nourish your brain, they're there to nourish your muscles and your organs, and so your brain can say, wait a second, 
all right, I can calm down. I don't have to worry that the fuel supply is limited. So hunger decreases, metabolism speeds up, and then you get to lose weight with your body's multi-million year evolutionary yeah. system working with you, not against you. And that's a message that's important for everybody, but it's critical for the children. Uh, about two years ago, I sat down at a conference with Nina Tatrolds. I said that right. There's an R in there. Tycholtz. Tycholtz. Sorry, Nina, if you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> and she and I sat down, and, and we actually discussed whether there was a need for a class action lawsuit against the American Heart Association for their bad advice. And and just I, I'm so troubled by this. And the very next day, I gave a talk in Malibu to a room full of, of very high-end Hollywood TV producers about the bulletproof diet, and I went through reverse T3 and cortisol and, and the case for a high-fat diet. And there was a cardiothoracic surgeon in the audience. And at the end of this, she stood up and she was one of the very senior executives at the American Heart Association. And, and I thought, man, she's going to just tear me apart. You know, she's got a lot of credentials. And she turned around and, and she looked at everyone and she said, I agree with everything he just said. We changed our fat recommendations a year ago based on the science and no one will listen. And I, I honestly almost had a tear in my eye because I'm like, like, it's not them. It, it, it's that there's a, a momentum that's happening from this bad, bad advice from years ago that's been built in. But even the leading voices now are starting yeah. to talk about what you're saying. In fact, you're one of the leading voices about fat. Yeah, well, I, have to, I do have to congratulate the American Heart Association. Yeah. They have, I mean, like... Almost every, like every other professional association, the government, you know, they advocated a low-fat diet, but they were quickly, they were quick to recognize, you know, within the last decade. And I'm not impressed. only did they recognize it, but yeah. they've come out with some very powerful policy, policy statements mm -hmm. targeting sugar and recognizing that the metabolic syndrome, you know, which is uh, the soil out of which diabetes mm -hmm. and heart disease grows, is... Um, fueled by insulin resistance. Yeah. And if you're insulin resistant, what sense does it make to dump in so much carbohydrate? I, I would have put them on the list of bad guys 10 years ago. And I am also, I'm truly impressed that, that the American Heart Association is, is moving. And it, it, they shouldn't be a leading edge thing. Right? Like they, they need to be a little conservative because they're a very large voice. So I, th that actually gave me great hope. The, the second thing you said about how low fat diets cause obesity, one of the things that I dealt with when I weighed 300 pounds uh, I, I could lose 20 pounds and I'd gain 30. Lose 30, gain 40. And it has to do with a hormone called ghrelin, and one you're, you're certainly familiar with. And what I discovered after recognizing what, uh, the, that Bulletproof Coffee had an unusual effect, uh, but not necessarily understanding what the effect was, I came across a couple of studies that showed that when you could raise your ketone levels, even just a 0.5 on a blood stick, which is below nutritional ketosis, that it would reset your ghrelin levels to your current body weight. Ghrelin's a thing that makes you have cravings and hunger all the time. So that instead of having, if you use a low-fat diet to lose weight, if you're 300 pounds and you lose 50 pounds, you'll have the hunger and craving levels of a 300-pounder. And you'll lose eventually. You'll start eating. And it's not a moral failing. That's just running out of willpower. But if you go into very mild ketosis, just a little bit, that that flips a switch, and all of a sudden your hunger levels now match your current body weight, which is kind of liberating. Uh, do you think this increase in fat that, that you're talking about in your book, do you have to go into ketosis for, yeah. this, for this to help people? Yeah. Well, let, me, let me just first say that I, I don't say, I'm not arguing that every low-fat diet is wrong for everybody. I agreed. There are yeah. populations that have eaten relatively low-fat in a, quite a healthy way. Yeah. You know, the Okinawan diet is said to, you know, be, 
but let's keep in mind that this is a very physically active population that doesn't that isn't burdened by obesity and, and, and insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. We're talking about what to do with a population in the United States yeah. and increasingly throughout the Western and now the developing nations that has obesity as its leading nutritional problem with insulin resistance. And the ultimate expression of that is type 2 diabetes, yeah. the ultimate metabolic meltdown. Now, people with diabetes are still told to eat a high carbohydrate diet. Diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is by definition glucose or carbohydrate intolerance. It's like telling somebody with lactose intolerance to have a lot of lactose. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so your question, you know, ketogenic diets are now the, increasingly the topic of very interesting research. Humans have are designed to be ketogenic when they're starving, when they're fasting, mm -hmm. and we can trigger that also with a very low carbohydrate diet as long as the protein intake isn't too high. Uh, or, or exogenously, like the, the brain octane oil or, that I or, make. Yes, you, you've, you've focused on ways of hacking yeah. the um, ketogenic pathways. And these uh, medium chain triglycerides, especially mm -hmm. uh, C8 and C10, are very ketogenic. The body wants to burn them. It goes right to the front of the um, fuel shuttle right. and uh, raises ketone levels. Now, ketones pass the blood-brain barrier. And so w uh, my own experience on a ketogenic diet was really nice mental clarity. You know, because yeah. blood sugar, when you're, when you're dependent on, on glucose to feed your brain, mm -hmm. changes in your blood sugar could potentially affect your mental function. And we see that in people with what's called reactive hypoglycemia. They eat a bagel for breakfast, they feel good for an hour. A couple hours later, you can see their blood sugar is down at or below fasting, and they're fuzzy. Yeah. Ketones, if you get into that state, are stable. And they, they're a very efficient fuel. The question is, does everybody need to be, is it advantageous for everybody? We don't know, and we need the yeah. research. I think what I'm especially interested in is people with type 2 diabetes. The yeah. possibility that a ketogenic diet could comprise an alternative to bariatric surgery oh, yeah. has to be researched. And why, oh, yes. why do we spend a billion dollars to develop a drug for just one diabetes complication, like cholesterol or hypertension, control blood sugar? We need to be spending a billion dollars for high-quality, long-term, big-scale, randomized controlled trials. But most of the research we do in nutrition suffers from a you know, shoestring budget, so we can't get definitive answers. So I think that that's one place. An another big question is whether the ketogenic diet will have advantages for the broad population or whether we can get most of the benefits just by cutting down on the processed carbs, building up on the healthy fats, uh, Ketogenic diets are restrictive, um, it, although yeah. you know, with maybe with some of your preparations, uh, a little less. So. I I've come to the conclusion, and this I mean Jeff Volek, who's one of the preeminent keto researchers, is actually here at the A4M, so I'm going to hopefully get a chance to chat with him as well. Uh, there's a, a crowd of, of very vocal keto advocates online who are all ketosis all the time. Glucose is the devil's work, and I, I don't believe that's borne out biologically. After having been in extreme ketosis for a while, and, and not, I, I believe that there's a pretty good argument that everyone with maybe some weird genetic exceptions would benefit from being in ketosis at least occasionally, at least mildly. 
And what I'm finding on my own blood sticks is that if I use brain octane in my bulletproof coffee, uh, I can get to 0.8, which is the edge of nutritional ketosis, as long as I don't have any sugar in the morning, even if I had sugar the night before. So I just want a little bit of ketone present because it provides that mental clarity. And by varying things like that, I just measured my insulin sensitivity, and it's on a scale of 1 to 120. Uh, and I don't remember the metrics off the top of my head. But 120 is type 2 diabetic, and 1 is as insulin sensitive as you can get. I used to be pre-diabetic, and I'm 1. I'm as insulin sensitive as you can get, and I'm highly glucose tolerant at the same time, which is unusual. And I think that's cyclical ketosis doing it, but I want to see the research. Yeah. Right? You know, we need to have a... A one billion dollar institute. Let's mm-hmm. create one in Harvard to <laughs> do, right. you know, the definitive um, studies to answer these questions. Whatever the answer is, mm-hmm. we need it. We need the answer. Maybe there are some areas that we, you know, all like. You know, I, I cherish my own mm-hmm. hypotheses. You, you have. Maybe we're fifty percent right. Maybe we're eighty yeah. percent right. Even if we're ten percent right, well, let's find that ten percent <laughs> and you know prove it. And, yeah. and then finally the percentage where maybe we didn't get it right, but the out of failure of a research study, sometimes you get a much greater discovery. Like penicillin mm-hmm. was discovered out of somebody's failed experiment, right, basically. Right. And uh, you know, it just makes no sense that we are investing so massively in drug development mm-hmm. and uh, have so many fundamental questions about food as medicine. Every time we eat, the hormones in our body change. Hormones are the most potent substance we, yeah. we have. They change the very expression of genes in our body. And you can influence that based on the amount, but also the type of foods you eat. Yeah. Why aren't we taking advantage of that? Why aren't we thinking of food as the ultimate medicine without side effects? Um, but you know, there's no multi-billion dollar company that stands to make huge profits from food research. It's, it's true, at least not yet. And I'm uh, Bulletproof is very far from a billion-dollar company, uh, but I'm willing, as the company grows, to fund research on things like that. I'm coming back in five years. <laughs> uh, and even maybe less than that, because there's a difference when, when you're making foods that are meant to have a specific effect. One, one of the problems that I run into, though, is that if I, say, carefully crafted a coffee beverage that I knew had medical effects... Even if I can show in one of your Harvard studies very strong effects, let's say on uh, Alzheimer's, cancer, uh, diabetes, or heart disease, any of the really big diseases of aging, there are legal limitations that make it illegal for me to say a food can do that. Right? Like I, I'm, it doesn't matter how yeah. much data, it doesn't yeah. matter if, if everyone in the country knows it, if I put it on the label... Yeah. It, it's not okay. Do you think that there's maybe a room for a policy change? So when food is proven to be healthy, we might actually call yeah, it healthy? Yeah, I, I think when, when we've got high, you know, the problem is there's so many supplements, and, yeah. you know, with commercial interests that Very have much. been marketed with, in scurrilous ways. And Very. so I think we, you know, but that's the whole point. If we've got the data, then we can base recommendations and claims on that. Now, I want to bring this around, mm-hmm. comment on something you just said, and then bring this back to children where you started. Um, we passed a milestone this year, which is that um, life expectancy for the first time, essentially since the Civil War, increased year after year. A few blips, a flu epidemic of uh, 1918 was one. But basically it's been going up ever since. Yet lately, the last couple of decades, it's been going up because we've been using more 
powerful drugs and surgical procedures to deal the con with the consequences of our diet, right. of obesity, and insulin resistance. And we've really, we've just hit the tipping point. We saw that increase in life expectancy slow down in the last few years. Last year, we've got the first statistically significant decline in life expectancy. It was about and two months, right? The difference in life expectancy went down by about two months. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about yeah. the right. Uh, and this is you know, all, many of them were um, food-related diseases, yeah. no, most notably cardiovascular disease and diabetes and a few others. So what, what's happening now? Well, we've got the first generation of children that were, and I should say that the most notable declines, it wasn't spread across the population, it was in middle age, not the old, not elderly. Mm -hmm. They're doing all right for their age, the middle age, where we're seeing that going up. So what do we know about the middle age? Well, this is the first generation born with industrial foods, yeah. you know, born in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s, just as the um, uh, fast food, industrial processed foods were really invading our diet. And then the low-fat diet on top of that, oh. that generation is now beginning to be you know the canary in the mine shaft here, and it emphasizes the critical importance of starting in, in childhood. You know this is an age yeah. when both um, behavioral but also biological plasticity is at its greatest. Whether it's developing that relationship between the palate and the brain yeah. and the sensitivity, or the gut microbiome that's training the immune system to tolerate the right foods, not develop leaky gut, or you know, unfortunately, with the wrong influences, get the wrong microbiome, leaky gut, yeah. and the consequences of systemic. And to get effective prevention for children, we need three things. We need the right food. We need the right diet. We have to give them the right yeah. message. You know, you've got to line up biology with behavior. We need the right approach to physical activity. You know, kids don't want to spend 20 minutes on a treadmill. Yeah. We need to make physical activity fun again. And then we need parenting practices you know, that will guide change. We live in this toxic environment with all the wrong influences. So until we can actually get the policy changes to make the world a healthier place, the family has to be a bastion of protection for children in the home. You create this yeah. protective bubble, and the parents do that in two key ways. One is modeling. If you do it, they'll do it. Uh, but unfortunately, if you don't do it, they won't do it. Yep. Um, and actually what do we call protecting the home environment? If it doesn't support health, don't bring it in the home. And that applies to food, that yeah. applies to you know, the high-def, widescreen TV in every room. Um, not that you, a kid can never have an ice cream cone, but just don't have it in the home. If we get yeah. these three things right, the right approach to, the right understanding of food, the right approach to physical activity, and the protective home environment, we can we can get an inroad into the obesity epidemic during those first few years um, yeah. that, that I think would, you know, would prevent a massive, massive public health crisis to come. There's a part of it, too. It, it starts about three months before conception. It really starts with your grandmother from an epigenetic <laughs> right, perspective. Right. And my, my very first book was The Better Baby Book uh, with Dr. Lana, my wife. And it's what we did to turn our fertility back on. What came out of that really clearly, and here we are at an anti-aging conference, if you really want to live a long time, have a super healthy grandmother and mother who ate great foods. And I think a lot of this dying in middle age that we're seeing now is because 
our mothers were eating processed foods. And it, we know <laughs> that this passes down. So even if you start with, with making an environment the way we did in our home, everything possible. We, could, we, we live in a forest so my kids can play outside, and we grow our own organic food. No and, Lyme disease? Uh, no Lyme disease. All right. Yeah, just, just lemon. <laughs> but <laughs> but we, uh, uh, we, we do so many things to try and do that. But they're still paying for the, the genetic sins of, uh, of my parents and their parents. You know, so it's funny, it's in, the Bible, in the Bible, there's this quote saying, the sins of the father will be visited for seven generations. And, yeah. you know, we, if, you, if you do Bible studies, that sounds you know, pretty harsh, but maybe from an epigenetic perspective, you know, the, the elders um, knew something. I, I think they did. And, and certainly for two generations, it's, it's very dramatic. You look at, at the, the kids and grandkids of people who experienced extreme trauma in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. And it affects their type 2 diabetes rate. Right. So, so what you're saying now to people, if you start young, get your kids going, yeah. and they'll do really well. But the real gift of that yeah. is in addition to seeing your kids thrive and not be obese and to have brains that work so they can be calm and focused, is that when you have grandkids, your grandkids will absolutely yeah. shine. We'll get a victorious cycle rather than a vicious yeah. intergenerational cycle. Very but it, well put. let's emphasize that it's never too late. You know, you're a, you know, you're a beautiful example of, uh, you know, you talked about in your book and in your public speaking how you had uh, developed obesity yeah. and you had and, all and sorts of arthritis, chronic diseases. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've, you look pretty good to me. I, I don't think I, I want to meet you in a dark alley at I, night. I'm 44 and, and, and I'm, I'm literally, my brain works better now than I did when I was 24. Yeah. And this is the power of changing our environment yeah. so that our biology does what we want. And what you're saying is to parents, you change the environment in the home, yeah. and the kid's biology will follow. Yeah, and, th and that's why I wrote my, my most recent book, the Always, Always Hungry. Hungry. Um, you know, first we get a program, a three-phase program to first uh, jumpstart metabolic change with a very high fat, although luscious diet. It's the mm -hmm. easiest way. When you dump in high-quality fats, you can displace the processed carbs without craving them. You know, that's a... We have some research to suggest it actually turns off the nucleus accumbens, the craving center. Right? Wow. Um, transition to something that's going to be sustainable. But the epilogue, the epilogue of my book is policy prescription. Yeah. Once we've brought healing into our own lives and into our own families, we have to turn that outward and fight for policy changes to detoxify the environment. And the yeah. most effective way we can do that is having made those changes in our own life. Because then we can speak with credibility and authority, you know, having struggled and showing success. That, that just communicates with people very effectively. Something else that's affecting kids and affecting you is environmental toxic mold. Uh, we, when we first met, uh, when I interviewed you for Always Hungry, uh, you were going through a, a personal mold experience. Are you open to, to chatting about that real quickly? Well, I'll just say that you know we uh, uh, had, after this horrible winter a few years ago, and all throughout the Northeast, I believe, massive amounts of snow, we got ice dams around the house, and turns out that we had leaks um, through the uh, chimney down and um, had a through uh, several floors of the house, very extensive mold. And then, like, as we began to look into this more, you know, our air handling system also 
had a lot of you know picked it up. But also air handling. If you've got air conditioning, you've got water. And if that's not being, you know, most homes is yeah. something you've talked about. You know, unless you're really paying attention to where water happens. And for many homes, even if the roof is solid, it's the air handling, the air conditioning system. Um, so mold can grow. And I myself was experiencing some joint aches, and muscle aches. And Did you gain weight? I, I didn't gain weight. Okay. And um, cognitively, what happened? You know, I, I think I just didn't feel like I was at my best. And it, it, it's like kryptonite. It didn't kill you, but it made you weaker. Is that a Sure, you know, okay. um, and uh, so it, we, you know, we fortunately got some good advice, and okay, we found where the problem was, and um, remediated it. And uh, happily, I think our insurance coverage is beautiful. Uh, You're fortunate. Uh, you know, cover for that, you know, and you really wonder about families that um, you know don't have good insurance coverage, or, or just you know, don't know. Most or, of them have or, no idea, or don't yeah don't it, even know. That's one of the things that triggered my obesity. I, I I know from all the other mold symptoms, I had like common nose constant nosebleeds and bruising. I lived in a moldy basement when I was getting to be an obese kid, and mold in a certain population of people triggers weight gain. Other people it triggers autoimmunity. But the problem is these yeah. symptoms are so generalized. Yeah. You know, is it mold? Is it Lyme disease? Yeah. Is it um, food allergies? <laughs> yeah. Is it chronic? Stress mm -hmm. um, is it? You know, it could be so many things, yeah. and uh, I think that that really speaks to a couple of things. One is we need good research. We need research, and there's a lot of vested interest against mold research because yeah. it's potentially a, a trillion-dollar problem. I mean, if if you know, a lot of in the housing industry and in the insurance industry don't want this information out because you know that's, they don't want to be paying for. So, but but you know, why aren't we? Thinking about environmental exposures uh, more effectively. Let's see, food and then air. Yeah. Right? So the number two source of public threat in my mind is mold, the allergic response to mold, and the toxins, the direct toxins that mold manufactures. But we, we and, need the re we. Yeah. I just you know I'm going yeah. back to we need the research. There's, we do. We don't like you know we don't know maybe and of course there's individual differences. Mm -hmm. Some people can live in a relatively moldy environment. Other oh, people. Yeah. Other are highly it, it, sensitive. It's just, very, very We know that. I mean, yeah. literally, just look at food allergies. Some sure. people can eat peanuts mm -hmm. all they want. Other people, you know, a whiff of it could send them into an anaphylactic yeah. reaction. So it's not enough to uh, just say there's a problem. We need to understand it mm -hmm. and um, take a much broader view of how food, stress, environment influence our immune system, influence our microbiome. But part of the thing that's exciting here is that the technology is coming so we can test the air in, in your home or in, in my home and understand what's in it. We can test food the way that I do with a coffee and, and other problematic foods where agricultural research shows us they're at high risk. And then we can cross-correlate those things. And look, Some people have less reactivity. However, there are some toxins that are hormetic that take a little bit, you get stronger. And there are other ones where like, it causes oxidative DNA damage. It just does more for that guy than for that woman. But maybe we ought to just pull this out of our environment when we can do it cost effectively. And that's the direction I'm pushing. Not perfection, but just awareness of problems, more research. And I've got about 900 studies on OTA and 1,200 on aflatoxin. And like, we know they're bad, but the dose and the individual variations, yeah. it, it's like a big open hole of big, research. Huge question mark. So before we wrap up, uh, something that we talked about. You're interested in doing real randomized controlled trials 
of nutritional things that don't have any vested interests because they're not pharmaceuticals and things like that. And I know that we have a very substantial number of, of highly successful people who listen to the show because I've, I've spoken with many of them, um, people with uh, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars uh, at their disposal. And thank you for listening. Uh, by the way, some of you I don't even know, I'm sure, but others I've been fortunate to meet. And if any of you are looking for some philanthropy, this is a good human being with all the right academic affiliations. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that I'm really interested in. And in no promoting. relationships with the food industry. Yeah, no. I no think one, it's, it's yeah. important that we do the, do the research without mm -hmm. conflicts of interest. And that's why we don't want to turn to the food industry yeah. for the millions of dollars. Well, we, we know what General Mills and, and all the grain companies have done to But even research. if a food industry has the greatest right. of interests, yeah. you know, well-motivated, we need the research to be impeccable. And at, at so, arm's length, right. so I'm proposing that we create a uh, quarter billion dollar institute at Harvard for intensive state-of-the-art nutrition research where we begin to think of food from its ability to influence our metabolism, yeah. the expression of our genes in ways that may make all the difference between a lifetime of good health or chronic disease. Well, what, maybe with some luck, someone who's looking for a good cause might want to fund some, some of your work at Harvard. If so, you can probably find either one of us on social media or send an email to support at Bulletproof, and I'll hook you up in, in the right way. Um, because, well, this is the sort of thing that, uh, that can change the world in a very meaningful way. Dr. Ludwig, your book is Always Hungry, and I already said this at the beginning of the show, but if you haven't read the book, and you're interested enough to be a regular Bulletproof listener, this is one that belongs on your bookshelf. It's, it's, it's very worthwhile. And it comes from someone who's the opposite of me, the unlicensed biohacker. <laughs> uh, incredibly well-credentialed, well-experienced professor in multiple fields that are all coming together to provide you with the knowledge you have now. So thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. Any other URLs or things you'd uh, like to Sure, you know, uh, I invite uh, your viewers to um, find me on drdavidludwig.com. Okay, D-R-David-L-U-D-W-I-G. Yes, drdavidludwig.com, and there you'll find links to my social media. We also have a Facebook community of, I think now, 7,000-plus people who are following the Always Hungry program and giving each other support. It's free and non-commercial. You don't have to buy the book to join the community. Um, and our perspective is we're trying to heal ourselves. And then create a grassroots movement for social change where we can yeah. then begin to you know, demand that the healthy options are the convenient and the affordable options too. Amen. Thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio and it's always a pleasure to get to hang out. We just finished lunch with Dr. Perlmutter and it's, it's been an amazing day. Okay. Really appreciate your work and appreciate Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. 
This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.